Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. My name is Guy Dunlap from Guy's Woodshop, and today I'm joined by Sean Walker, Creative Simple Cove. How's it going, Guy? I'm doing just wonderful. Hui is off tonight. We had a baby. Well, he didn't have a baby. His wife had a baby. That's right. So congratulations, uh, Hui and Mrs. Hui and the newborn. That's right. Congratulations, Hui. Yeah, it's awesome. Um, This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we do have a Patreon campaign. Right now, we have one level, and we are simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing you this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife. I would also like to say hello to a couple new patrons we have. Uh, Paul Engel and Lior Witto. And we sincerely hope that you will give us your support in the future. And stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our own shops. So there's only you and me, Sean. So we're going to take three questions each and you've got the first question. So hit it. So this is from Glenn. He says two things. Number one, for the listeners, there seems to be only 58 Patreon members. This is a great resource and I hope more of you contribute as $5 a month is a bargain. Well, Glenn, we appreciate that. And number two, for the gentleman, can you please talk about... When you do your edge details in relation to sanding, for example, if you're doing a small chamfer with the block plane, I would think this happens after all the sanding is complete. But if you're looking to blend in a top and bottom round over, I assume this is done before any sanding, but at the risk of losing some symmetry. Looking forward to your thoughts on this topic. Uh, all right. Well, I'm going to take this in the order that you put it in there. So in, in the first example, a chamfer, uh, regardless if I'm using a block plane or a chamfering bit out the router table, uh, I most likely make this uh, my final operation, just like you said, so you don't change any of the sizing of the uh, of the chamfer due to sanding. Um, the chamfering process, for the most part, doesn't mess with the finished surface, so you know I tend to uh, to do that last. And you know, if I do run into some issues with a dull uh, block plane uh, blade or a, a dull router bit, that I may change up what I do, but for the most part, a chamfering bit, a chamfer is a chamfer. Uh, there's no sandpaper that's really going to clean that up. So I'm starting sharp and, and doing that last. Uh, the roundover, whether that be a bottom or a top or both, uh, I like to actually sand through my rougher grits, like 80 to 120. And then I'm going to do some routing and hand tooling with either a block plane or a spoke shave to blend that in. And then I'm going to sand using my higher grits and also hit the rounded surface using those same higher grits. So what I'll do is I'll sand 8120, hop over to the router table with the roundover bit set to the right height. If I'm doing a bottom, just run it. If I'm doing both top and bottom, I'll run it, flip it over, run it again. Again, these are at my lower grits. And then uh, I'll, I will sand the surface using my higher grits. And to hit that rounded edge, what I like to use is the foam-backed square sheet. Uh, sandpapers. I know there's probably a proper term for that. Uh, yeah, foam back square sheets. <laughs> Perfect. Nailed it. <laughs> so I'll use those. I really like those when it comes to sanding rounded surfaces. They they form to the shape and they're rounded over nicely. But yeah, I'm trying to think if there's any other type of uh, edge surfacing that I will do that uh, that I do it in this different from this order. Chamfering is pretty much the only um, process that I will do last just because you're typically not cleaning that up with sandpaper because you want those nice crisp edges. Mm-hmm. But, but everything else, you know, whether that be like a table, a bit, a thumbnail bit, a roundover bit, or whatever bit, a shaker style bit that you want, I typically, I will do that not last, but after my rougher grits. Uh, what am I missing, Guy? What, what do you think about this? I question? don't think you're missing anything, Sean. I think it's it's um, just a preference thing. Myself, I always sand everything last. Yeah. So if I've got something like a chamfer, I'm doing that with the router. I, I'm looking at a piece right now in my office where it's a, a case on stand, and it's got a chamfer around it and I didn't sand it. And of course there's a little ripple and I see that little ripple every day and it bothers me. So 
ever since then, I've always just sanded afterwards, period, end of story. If it's a chamfer, I'm going to put a, use like a wooden block, not something uh, soft, but a, but a hard wooden block. Yeah, and, good call. And, and glue up uh, with contact adhesive, you know, that spray stuff like the, the, the Scotch 77. Yeah. Spray that on there, put a piece of sandpaper on there and do it by hand. Uh, any any edge details, I always do by hand. Uh, the things I really hate doing are end grain on a tabletop because I've got, and I actually take the time and hand sand with the grain. Up and down. Yeah. So if you've got like a, Ugh. you do like an OG, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a nightmare. It'll take you forever. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's it's worth it. I mean, surface prep before you put the finish on is like, I, I would put that up there with anything that's important in woodworking. It's got to be done right. And you've got to take the time to do it. People just want to rush through it. I just want to get it done. Well, you can't look at it that way. You got to do it right. So I do quite a bit of hand sanding because of that, and especially the, the edge details. So yeah, that's I completely forgot about a hard block with sandpaper. Um, when I primarily do chamfers, I'm not doing a big chamfer, and yeah. mine always seem to come out pretty smooth for the most part because I don't do heavy chamfers. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, that that's a good call about about sanding them with sandpapers. That hard block is the key. Yeah, and and if you're doing something like or you're just easing a 90-degree edge, I dig going in with the block plane first and just giving like two passes on it Mm -hmm. just to take the hard corner off. And then I'll take a piece of sandpaper, just, you know, cup it in my hand kind of thing and go over that, that edge once or twice. And that'll knock off any hard corners. That you might have, but never do that with a, with a sander because yeah, absolutely. You're, just, you're asking for trouble. <laughs> yeah. The, the thing with my, with the chamfers, if they're, if I'm doing a light chamfer and you know, I'm not done a whole lot of really big projects re- lately. So I'm looking at like, I'm, I'm thinking at like a small level. So my, my, my thinking may be skewed on this, but like with boxes where you're doing a chamfer, Mm-hmm. Um, you're doing a real, real light chamfer. And then I'm, you know, my mind is going to, I don't want to sand it afterwards because I don't want to make that chamfer any smaller and, and inconsistent, but I can see like on a big tabletop or you're doing a, you know, doing a nice size chamfer. You could definitely, that's one of the things where you can definitely sand after the fact and not change the shape. Mm-hmm. And the same thing on a big tabletop with a round over or something like that. If you sand after, you're not really going to change the, the, the shape of that round over. It's just a preference thing, like you're saying. And it, re- it really depends on how you attack that that edge. So if it's a rounded edge, like I said, I use just sandpaper and I curl it in my hand and just go to town. Go to town. If it's a something straight, you know, I'll use a, a like I said, I'll, I'll glue a piece of sandpaper to a piece of wood and. You know, especially if there's like a fillet on an OG or something like that. So, yeah. All right. I think we've burned that question up as much as we can. And uh, that yeah. next question goes to me. That's right. It's easy tonight. Just you and I, yes, you and I, is. you and I. This is from Tree of Life Woodworking. You didn't put a name down, but it's a pretty cool sounding company, Tree of Life Woodworking. I like it. This is a a question mainly for Guy. That's me. We've heard you talk about your love for the Incra 5000 many times. I've had one myself for a few years. One part I want to pick your brain on is how you claim to be able to square it up in seconds. I will preface this by saying that I hope I'm missing something in my own experience, but I find I still need to do the five cut method for mine every now and then because when the fence gets bumped, well, you can no longer trust the registration marks until it's squared again. Aside from this, there's also so much play in the outer end of the fence before you lock it down, so how do you ever trust the angle? I find myself only setting it to 90 degrees and still occasionally find it's misaligned. I wouldn't dare trust it for angles like 45, etc., because of the play of the arm, and the other factors. What am I doing wrong? I have made sure everything is right. Well, 
that's there's a lot to unpack there. So first of all, I want to explain what the five cut method is. Are you familiar with the five cut method, Sean? Oh yeah. Okay. So that's where you take a cross cut sled and you put a block of wood on it, rectangular, square, whatever. But it's got to have a little bit of size. Let's say be a, a 12 by 12 square. And you mark, you know, one, two, three, four on the on the block of wood, on the square of wood. And you make one cut at 90 degrees. Then you make it, you flip it. Uh, or you rotate at 90. Rotate at 90 degrees, cut it, do it on all four sides. And then you make a fifth cut. And the fifth cut will have the cumulative air of your fence. So then you take a pair of calipers and you measure one end of the piece to the other end of the piece. And let's say it's off by seven thousandths of an inch. Then you have to adjust your fence like seven thousandths of an inch in or seven thousandths of an inch out, depending on the... uh, there's a formula to that based off the size of it. and the, Yeah, the it's, of it's, there's yeah. a lot of math involved. So um, William Ng did a really good video on the five cut method. Yeah. So William Ng, William NG woodworking. Um, I'd recommend watching his video. It's long, but he's a very funny guy and it's very good. Anyways, so that's how you do it. It's a very tedious labor-intensive thing to do, the five-cut method. So how do I square my Anchor 5000? If people are not familiar with the Anchor 5000, it's a pre-made cross-cut sled with an Anchor miter gauge on it built into it. To square it is like really simple because you make a cut in the, the tabletop of it, not just a... a a saw kerf, but physically you cut part of the table off where your blade is. Then all you have to do is take like a big 45 degree, like a, one of those 12 inch speed square kind of things. I've got a really nice woodpeckers one. And I put it on the edge of that and I butt the fence up against it and I lock it down. It's dead nuts 90. Now that I have that 90 degrees, I can adjust my gauge to that. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. So once I adjust my gauge to that and lock it down, I know it's 90 degrees. Then I can lock down the arm on the outside. You've got one of these too, don't you, Sean? Yeah, I do. You don't use it though? Not that much. It's heavy. (laughs) It is heavy. I'll agree with you. It is heavy. But But I've only got got room in my shop for one cross-cut sled, and I love that thing to death. So- you lock it down. And once you once you figure out where 90 is and you get the miter gauge, because you can use some set screws, you loosen it up, and then you put it to 90, and then you lock it in. And now you've got the calibration numbers there. So if you put it to 45, it's dead nuts 45. I don't know any other way to explain it, but it's like perfect. I, I don't have any issues with mine at all. Every time I use it, I do a, a quick five-minute calibration on it because I, I tend to – I have it set uh, in a part of my shop where I have to pick it up by the handle, the knob. I'm always worried about knocking it out of alignment. So I pick it up by that, put it on my table saw. I do a quick check to make sure it's at 90 if I set it at 90, and I'm off to the races. So you have one, you don't use it. So what do you use, Sean? No, I mean, I use it um, when I have pieces that are larger than I can cut using my regular miter gauge. Mm-hmm. I will use that. Um, I did build a dedicated uh, crosscut sled, but that was, I think that was before I got this Anchor 5000. So if I've got mm-hmm. a panel that I need to cut that is wider than my miter gauge, I will use this. And yeah. um, it's it's handy to have for sure. Um, and I, you know, I, I same same thing you said, you know, it's going to give you that zero clearance cut the first time you cut that sled base. And then you just use that to, with a, a known good square to square up your fence and dial that in. And then you can, you know, then you can just trust that it's 90 every time. And then once you say, and once you dial it in, you can adjust it to where it's cutting the angles using the, the stops and it should yeah. be good. 
Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm with you on that. I use my miter gauge quite a bit, um, and I've mentioned this before. I'm, I'm blessed to have a Kpex, <laughs> which I can do like you know, I think like 11 inch or 12 inch cuts at 90 degrees with that thing. Um, but I do use my my cross cut sled quite a bit, and I use the miter. Anything that's over, you know, like eight or nine inches, I'm using the crosscut sled. And on my table saw, because it's a, a larger top, I actually have a 24 inch crosscut width with the Incra 5000 on my table saw, which is massive. Uh, and it's awesome. Yeah. But I, I have had a, a, a shop made sled. I've had, you know, a bunch of shop made sleds. And I went through the five cut method one time and I said, I'm never putting myself through this again. <laughs> yeah, it's it's not fun for sure. No. The no, only I, go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I was I was gonna say the only thing that I have outside of this that is a sled is I have a dedicated miter sled for cutting miters for like boxes because I just mm-hmm. find it, you know, I find it just easier uh to cut than Cause my, my miter, my Incra 5000, I have it to where I have it on the left side of my blade. So when I tilt my blade, it, it, it won't work for miters uh, yeah. because I have it on the left side. So for any miters I end up using for the, uh, now I end up using a miter sled dedicated for that. Yeah. For edge miters. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I have one of those too. And it's kind of nice cause it, 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 you put a zero clearance fence on the back of it. And you can see exactly where it's going to cut. Yeah. That's yep. another big advantage to, to have one of those. Yeah, cross-cut sleds, I mean, a shop-built one, they're good, but, I mean, they go out of alignment. They're hard to adjust, and they're hard to get perfect. And even then, I think we get too bogged down with perfection on something. You know, if it's if your if your homemade sled is off five thousandths of an inch, who cares? <laughs> yeah, it just we're, depends we're talking, on if it affects your work. Yeah, but you're talking the thickness of a sheet of paper. I mean, I I get it, but then I don't get it. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm I'm of the opinion if it if it translates and it you know into me having it's a visible. gap. Yeah, if it translates into me having a gap in joinery, then I'm going to have a problem with it. But if it's me cutting a piece for like a, a table leg and the and the, the bottom of the leg is off five thousandths, I'm not concerned. But if it now in joinery and stuff like that, it's when it's going to bother me. I think it was the first time I heard it anyways was Jimmy DeResta that said, if it looks square, it is square. Yeah. <laughs> I kind of live by that, so... Um, that was a good question. I, and a lot of people have questions on crosscut sleds. So my recommendation, I really like the Anchor 5000. Um, if you make a homemade one, there's a lot of different ways you can make it. And, uh, look at the William Ng thing where he does the five cut method. So I'm going to kick it back to you, Sean. All right. This is from Monty. I see and hear people referring to how many hours they have in a particular project. 50 hours for this, 100 hours for that, etc., and so on. More so for people doing commission work than just personal stuff, I guess, but it got me wondering, how do you generally figure the hours for a project? Do you keep track of your shop time, or is it more of a best guess? Do you count stock prep, tool sharpening during the course of the project, building jigs necessary for the project, time spent waiting between coats of finish? How deep in the weeds do you go on this, and how does it differ between individual projects that you do at home versus, say, projects done at work, in Guy's case? Thanks, Monty. I took this one because I'm also interested in what Guy and his folks do at, at work, but I'm going to talk a little bit about how for you know individual personal projects at home and how I do it. Being a night and weekend woodworker, it's very hard to keep track of the hours that it takes because you're going to, you have less time in the shop. So that means it's going to take you more nights out in the shop. So you're going to, if you don't write these down, you're, you're not easily going to remember how many hours something takes. So the only way that I could, I've tried this on a couple of projects, um, but the only way that I was able to determine anything remotely <laughs> close is by writing it down the day and the number of hours and just keeping track of that throughout an entire project because 
woodworking on nights and weekends, building a coffee table for me may take me, you know, four weeks, five weeks of, you know, five nights a week. So you got however many lines that is in a notebook. And if you don't keep track of that, you can't keep track of that in your head accurately. So what I did was I just, I wrote it down for just, just for, you know, just my own education of how long stuff really took. I had since stopped doing that because it's just not, it's not that important to me anymore. But when I was keeping track, I was keeping track of the time that I was in the shop. Um, mm-hmm. time between fi- coats of finish. No, it didn't count. Cause I wasn't in the shop cause you don't want to be out there making dust. But if I'm out there doing anything related to that project, I would write it. I would keep track of that time. Really? And yeah. Huh? Really? What do you mean? That's, really? I, I've, I've never done that on a home project. Yeah. I've done it. Like I said, I only done it once or twice and I don't do it anymore, but yeah, yeah I mean, I was just interested in how long something would take and it, you know, it, the time really does add up. Uh, obviously mm-hmm. now it would be faster with the more that I know, but yeah, when, you know, when you're first starting out, th- this is a question that came up, how long does this really take me? And I would try to keep track. And then obviously when it went away because I would forget to write it down and this just wasn't something I really cared about because I don't sell pieces to anybody. So it didn't matter how long it took me. And plus, you know, at the end of the day, I got the project done and it looked great, but yeah, I would, when I did do it, the two, the one or two times that I did do it, I would just have to keep a, a running log of how many hours I was out there that night. And, you know, if I wasn't out there, I didn't count it, yeah. but that's, I mean, that's what I did for the one or two times in, in the 11 years that I've been doing this. And as you can tell, I don't do it anymore because it's, it's <laughs> irrelevant. For me. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't matter. I'm not selling it. So it doesn't matter. Um, but that was my, uh, experience in that. And the numbers are a whole lot higher than people think when they go to quote something, it's a whole lot higher mm-hmm. than you think. Oh but yeah. Yeah. That is, I mean, uh, th- that's the individual projects for me. What you said, you don't do it in, for your own personal stuff. How do you do it at, at, at your work? Or does that even well, matter at work? Well, let, 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 let's address the home thing first. I mean, if you're, if you're building a project for yourself or for family members, something you're not selling, it, it doesn't really matter how much, how much time you spend on it in my, in my eyes. So I've never, ever tracked it. I've only tracked it when I've, you know, done a commission piece and I did what you did, Sean. I just write it down. Yeah. Two hours here, four hours here, six hours here kind of thing. And but other than that, if somebody asked me, so you built this for yourself, how many hours do you have in it? I don't know. I started it on this day and I finished it on this day. I don't know. 70 hours maybe. Okay. It sounds good. And I just kind of guess at it. You know, I, I, I was at it for, you know, six weeks. That's all I know. You know what I mean? Yeah. So um, at work, it's pretty simple. We just have a punch clock. And you, when you, it's, it's pretty basic project management stuff. Every job has a number. And every time you do something related to that job, you log into that job and you, you know, punch into that job number. And then when you go into another job, you punch into that job number. So if I'm working on three projects at once, I've, I've got my smartphone out quite a bit, you know, changing which job I'm into. It's kind of a pain. But it really helps in the long run because it it lets you know what your costs are. Yeah. When you when you've got you know twenty guys running around a shop working on multiple projects, you got to know what the hell they're doing. So um, I'm sure that if I have not looked, but I'm sure if you looked on either Google Play or the Apple um, App Store, I'm sure there's a simple like uh, like a time punch kind of thing that you could probably get for free that'll track a, a simple you know single project for yourself and you can just punch in and out punch yourself in and out with the smartphone I would think there's something like that out there I have not looked yeah um, there has to be something that's just you know just a digital mm-hmm. a digital free yeah there's there's got to be a lot of that stuff out there yeah, there has to be something. There's always some. <clears throat> Anything you want is out there if you just know how to find it. Yeah. So, 
You know, one of the things that I will mention on, on this and I thinking back on when I did this, um, and I could see some other folks wanting to know this for personal projects just because of, Hey, they're, they're, they're not necessarily new at woodworking, but they're, are interested in potentially selling pieces that they mm-hmm. have made. So you can't really, if you, if you're building something now that you may sell later, it's, it's something that's good to keep track of how long it takes you. Sure. Sure. There's also a mindset and I'm, I'm going to go off into the weeds just a little bit on this one. So if I'm building for myself or my wife or a family member, um, I kind of take my time. I'll like work for an hour and sit back, sit, sip some coffee, watch a little, you know, news on the TV, change the radio station, put on a podcast, then go back to work. And before I know it, I've wasted 20 minutes. And then I kind of, you know, do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I don't really work at a hurried pace, if that makes sense if I'm building something where I'm getting paid to build it, I work at a much faster pace and I'm much more focused. So I'd say I probably, um, maybe 50% faster. If I'm, if I know it's, I got to get it done. If that makes sense, something that would take me, you know, an hour for the family is only going to take me, you know, uh, 45 minutes, let's say, if I'm getting paid for it. That makes, does that make sense? Uh, I mean, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> I mean, I understand what you're saying. I guess I'm just still, I'm just saying on my part, if I'm building something and I know that I might try sale in the future, I'm just going to keep track of my hours. Yeah. Which yeah. is why I've never, I don't sell stuff. I end up giving away to family members for the price yeah. of materials. <laughs> Yeah, but what, what all, I'm, all I'm trying to say is that, you know, you're going to, if you're doing it, to, if you're building something to sell, it, you're going to work faster. Right. Yeah, I agree. Than if, than if you're just building for yourself. So it's hard to get those numbers. What I do, and they, I get asked all the time at work, you know, hey, guy, how many hours is this project going to take? And that's, I mean, that's our official estimation. And I look at it in days. I look at everything in, because we work four tens. I look at everything in blocks of 10 hours. So I look at something and I say, okay, that's going to take me to do this, this, this. It's going to take me three days. It's going to take me 30 hours. And that's it. And that's my part of it. And then they go to finishing. They say, how long is it going to take to finish? And you know, metal fab may have to do something. And then they put all the hours together and that's it. Yeah. But, um, now, if, if you're selling something yourself, that's probably a little bit different than how you would say at home. Yeah, because I, 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 I don't base anything I price, and we've gone over this before. I, I use market price. I don't base it on, it's not based on my, my cost. Yeah. Because if I can get, you know, a million dollars for something, I'm going to get a million dollars for it. doesn't matter what my cost is. I'm going to get as much as I can for it. I'm going to base it on what the market will bear for it. So that's a topic for another story, another day. So I'll take the next question here. Yeah, it's all on to you. This is from Jack Francis in Geneva, Illinois. It says, hey, guys, I really enjoy the podcast. Thanks for sharing your expertise with the woodworking world. Well, thank you, Jack. I've decided to upgrade my sharpening media by moving away from Norton Waterstones and purchasing two of the DMT Duo Sharp diamond plates, 220-325 mesh and a 600-1200 mesh, and the 6,000 grit Shapton Glassstone for final honing. It's my understanding the ceramic on the glass stone will require flattening, but not nearly as often as the Norton stones, which I flatten after every use. You're absolutely correct. Um, can you tell me how to best determine when my 6,000 grit glass stone will need flattening, especially since it will be used primarily only for final honing? Also, can the DMT diamond plates be used for flattening the glass stone? If so, 
which grit mesh do you recommend? Thanks again and keep up the great work. So I basically do, I, I have Shapton glass stones. Uh, I do not have duo sharp DMT diamond stones. And I think I've got from 2000 to six or 8,000. I've got four of the, the Shapton glass stones. I can't remember which grits they are. Um, and they, they do not require flattening as much as the Nortons do. <laughs> the, Nortons, the Nortons actually worked really well, but you do have, there's a lot of care you have to take with them. You're they were potato Nortons. chips. My Nortons were. Were they? Yeah, oh, you got to flatten them up constantly. Yeah. Um, and I flatten my Shapton glass stones with the same thing I flattened the Nortons with. I have a... a I can't remember. It's a Japanese thing. The Shapton glass stones are Japanese too. I don't know if people realize that. Um, but I have a, a Japanese flattening stone. It's 400 grit. It's a, it's an aluminum block. It's got a mesh on it, but it's 400 grit. And that's what I flatten my Shapton glass stones with. So is it a diamond plate? Yep. Okay. It's pretty thick. It's not like the, the, the those DMTs are pretty thin, aren't they? No, they're about, I would say they're about three-eighths thick. Okay, then I'm thinking of something else. You can get different quality of the DMT ones as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of the DMTs. It's like a piece of plastic with stuff on it. It's got like a mesh diamond plate on it. Yeah, these these they're are the sharp, the, well, the ones I have are the, they're, they're metal plates with diamond on it the diamond plates the, the mine's dmt and it's metal okay well i've got dmt i've got a dmt one that too that i take to work and it's yeah. like a piece of plastic with a yeah you know, very very thin metal and two-sided surface. yeah two-sided i have the same thing as well i have so many of those things but yeah they make the metal plates and they make those plastic two-sided ones okay okay anyways the shaft and glass stones i said i've got a 400 grit uh, diamond plate, and I can't remember the brand name, but it's a Japanese stone also. I've had it for you know years, probably a decade. And that's what I flatten my, my glass stones with. And as far as, you know, when they need it, um, I just, you know, take a straight edge and look across it. Hold it up there and see if I've, I've bellied it or hollowed it out at all. And if I have, I just... You know, it only takes a minute to do, to flatten it. It's not like it's a lot of work. So what do you use, Sean? I have the Shapton Waterstones. I came from the the set that probably most woodworkers start with, the Norton set with uh, two stones and their Mm -hmm. flattening stone. And it was, I spent more time flattening than I did sharpening (laughs) with that set. So I ended up throwing those away. And purchasing the uh, cheaper Shapton Waterstones on Amazon, um, they just have the the Japanese writing on them, and and I don't think that they are. Well, I'm, I'm not sure where they're if they are like the the. I don't know if you can get them in like stores or not. Uh, I don't know if they're like the Japanese version of it, but anyway, I got them on Amazon. It's the Shapton Stones. I've already forgotten what grits I have. But I also, to flatten those, I use the, a DMT diamond plate. It's a coarse plate. Uh, I don't know what the mesh in that is. They just call it coarse. There's like extra coarse and coarse and yeah. on up. Yeah. I use the DMT uh, coarse stone to flatten it, uh, my stones. But, and, you know, and, and, and listening to what you're saying about this and reading what Jack says, would I be wrong in thinking that because it stays flat um, longer, would I be wrong in, in, in saying that I would still li- try to flatten it after every sharpening session? Because if it stays flatter longer, that means it's only going to take a couple swipes to flatten it if it needs it at all. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, that, yeah, yeah that's my opinion I'd, I'd, on it. I'd say, I'd say that's, that's a, that's a good way to go. Um, I don't, I, I, I break out my, I break out those stones maybe three or four times a year. If that. Yeah, they're nice, man. I'm, I'm one of these days I'm going to 
end up getting me a set of those, but yeah, they're really nice. Um, yeah, they're expensive. I, they yeah, are. I think they're like a hundred, $150 a piece, depending on the grid. I said, I got four of them and they're thin. I was shocked by that. Yeah. But they yeah. last a long time. They last a long time. And that's the thing. It's like, it's in the back of your mind. You know, I paid $150 for this stone. And now I'm going to take this 400 grit monster <laughs> and, shave, and erase it. <laughs> and it, Yeah. Shave parts of it away. It's like, no. There goes 15 bucks. Yeah. Yeah. But it, they, they've lasted me a long time. But then again, I don't, you know, sharpen like There's some people that sharpen their crap every day. You know, uh, that's not me. Yeah. So I guess it, it really depends on how much you use it too. But if you're using it that much, you're probably a professional and that's a cost of doing business. That's yep. a, that's a, that's a shop cost. So if you have to replace them, you have to replace them. Yeah. If it's you go through those, deal. you're using them. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But yeah, I would, uh, what I do when I flatten is I just take a pencil and draw a grid on the, mm-hmm. on the stone, on the water stone, and then just use the diamond plate, rub it over that until those are gone. And then, you know, it's flat. And with yep. these being, the higher end glass stones, you draw your grid and I bet it'll take two swipes and it's flat. If you do it after every session, it won't take much. Yeah. And just so people understand what we're talking about, the glass stones, it's a Shapton stone, but it's got a, like a, maybe a quarter inch or three eighths of an inch piece of tempered glass that the, the, the stone sits on. Yeah. It looks pretty cool too. Yeah. Yeah, they're they're very they're very nice. <laughs> Again, they're very expensive. Especially the higher grits are expensive. Yeah. So I'm gonna kick it back to you, Sean. All right. This is from Adrian. He says, Hi all. I love learning from y'all, though your podcast has cost me a bit of money since I hear about some great things that I have to buy. Well, we apologize. But that's woodworking <laughs> in a nutshell. However, my spouse says that we are running out of room in our tiny sixteen and a half by eight point seven five foot Ouch. garage. And has put her foot down on a thickness planer. They pretty much use a lathe and other machinery to help support their lathe work. Benchtop, bandsaw, sander, drill press, job site, table saw. And have no stated need for a thickness planer. I'm interested in moving more into furniture and cutting boards. So I thought a thickness planer and and possibly one day a joiner would be helpful in my woodworking. I found plans for a jig that I could use my router on, but I didn't know if this would be a sufficient substitution. Have any of you used such a jig for planning? And if so, how did you find it compares to a thickness planer? Also, do you have any suggestions to efficiently plane or joint wood without a planer or joiner? Thanks in advance for your help, Adrian. Well, this is a this is a packed question here that oh, yeah. <laughs> Guy and I can help you with. Um, let me let me say a few words and then I'll pass it to to Guy here and see what he thinks on it. But let me start off by uh, answering your first question about using a router jig for uh, uh, as a thickness planer. Basically, anytime that you deal with large slabs, you're going to be using a a router sled for you know planing that surface down to a thickness. Um, can you use that for, you know, dimensional lumber, rough lumber that you're going to, well, dimensional lumber, I guess. So say you got a, a rough four quarter board, you want to get down to three quarters of an inch. Can you use a router sled to do that? Yeah, you can. Um, it's just going to take more time. Um, the repeatability may be a little difficult on that. Uh, there may be ways around that, but let's say you need to get a tabletop all glued up with pieces that are going to be the exact same thickness and you're jointing or planing these boards one or two at a time, depending on the size of your, of your jig, you may find some issues with that, making, making sure they're the same thickness. Uh, if you're using it for cutting boards, um, you could also use it for leveling out your glue ups for your cutting board. So there's a, a pro for that. But as far as milling your lumber, it is possible it's time consuming. It's not as easy as just slapping it through a planer and getting consistently thick boards out that, that you can glue up for, um, you know, a tabletop or any other furniture piece that you need. Um, but if push comes to shove, you could use a router jig for a thicknesser. It's would I outside of a slab that I'm trying to mill. No, I wouldn't. It, it's just, it, just because of the things that I mentioned, it's, it's, you know, I would rather invest in a lunchbox planer that I could put under some other piece of, of tool and hide it out of the way and, until you need it instead of setting up a big router jig that if you don't, 
if you don't collapse the router jig, I mean, it's going to take up floor space just like a, a planer would. I would personally get one of those DeWalt 734s or 735 lunchbox planers um, and then just stick it somewhere when you're not needing it. I would rather do that than use a router sled um, in trying to make my boards the, you know, the same thickness and, and using that for a planer. Um, and before I pass it off to Guy, do you have any suggestions to efficiently plane or joint wood without a planer or a joiner? Um, the only way that I can think of for the planer outside of using a hand tool or using a planer is the router jig. That's the only other way that I'm aware of that you would be able to, to plane a board down outside of a hand tool or a planer. Uh, for a joiner, you can use your table saw with a straight line jig um, with a known, uh, a known straight surface to ride it against the fence. Uh, we, there, we've talked about that before. And the other option is using, you can use a router with your a router table. Some of the fences do have the option to use that as a joiner where you can bump one side of the fence out and use that as a joiner. But I would probably, if you're using rough lumber, depending on the size of the board, I would go with a straight line ripping jig at the table saw for a joiner. Um, and then once you're done with that, take it off the jig, flip it over and run that up against the fence to get you a, a parallel board. But these are going to be some difficult tasks without a planer and or a joiner. Can you do it? Yes. It's just now you got to trade off of time and uh, the stresses of trying to get these boards perfect. And that's what I'll say on that guy. What, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you got for Adrian? Well, well, Adrian, I, I mean, it's a, it's a tough question. I don't say it's a tough question. It's a tough situation. Yeah, perfect. That way. Perfect. So the first and most obvious answer is learn how to use hand tools. Get a big number seven plane, you know, to do your, your face joining with and your edge joining with and scrub planes and all those other fun planes that crazy people do to flatten boards with. You can do that, uh, but it takes time to learn it properly, and it takes time and, and you know, it's physical work to do it. Uh, myself, I got a, I'm looking at a 16 and a half by 8 by 7, 5 foot garage. That's really bad when you start, you know, it's an 8.75. Yeah. Not just, you know, 8 and a half, but I got, I got to get that extra couple inches in there. If you want to start down the road to making furniture, it's not necessarily the size of your shop, but there is nothing more important in making furniture than having flat square stock. And I can't stress that enough. I agree. I highly recommend, you know, a, a, a six, a, even a six inch floor standing joiner does not have a huge footprint. You put it on a mobile base and you put it up against the wall. You put it under shelves, let's say, and it's only going to come out maybe 10, 12 inches from the wall. I don't know what that number is, but it's not that much. Maybe let's say it's a foot that when you push it up against the wall that it's going to take up. And Sean hit the nail right on the head with the, the thickness planer. I don't know if I'd go with the big four post wall mainly because of your situation, because that, that little guy is heavy. It's almost it's about 50 pounds. And picking that thing up and moving around quite a bit is, well, for an old fart like me, I don't want to do it. So I would get just the, the, the regular lunchbox style planer. It doesn't have to be a DeWalt. It could be anything. There's lots of good planers out there, and they're not that expensive, but they don't weigh 50 pounds like that other one. And they're smaller, and they take up less room. So that could be put on a, a, a strong shelf on the wall. When you need it, you put it down on your workbench, you run your lumber, and then you put it back up. Yep. Um, and they're great capacity too. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're only a 12 inch. So it, it, it's between those two, it would be more than enough to get you, get you going. And for years, I, I only had a six inch joiner. Yeah. And I was too. still you know, face joining 12 inch wide boards. I just do half of it. And then I had a board I put underneath it and then I ran it through the, the joiner. So, or the, the thickness planer. Um, it can be done. It can be done. And you've got a, a tough situation with the, the, the square footage you have, but you have to make use of it. And 
to do what you want to do. If you want to do it with power tools and not hand tools, you need a joiner and a planer. There's no substitutes. You can get by with a router and a router jig, I guess, but Sean's right. That still takes up room. You know, you're going to set that jig up and tear it down every time to use it. No, yeah, it's too, it's too much work. And I just don't know how you would get consistent thicknesses on between board to board. No, you're not going to. It's just too tough. It's just too tough. I, I, I would go, I said, if it were me, I'd find, I, I would find room for it. Yeah. I'm good at finding room for stuff. Yep. Even, even on top of other stuff, I'm good at finding room, but yep. Yep. yeah, I, I agree with guy hundred percent. You know, I started out with the, that six inch, um, I started out with the Porter cable, six inch bench top joiner. And, you know, I was able to make some stuff. Don't get me wrong. But then I mm-hmm. went to a six inch Grizzly G zero something, six, seven, five or something <laughs> like that. Six inch, six inch, just basic uh, joiner. And then I, I was using a 734 DeWalt and I built some amazing, at least in my eyes, amazing furniture using that setup. And it's yeah. like guy said, the joiner you only need. You got six inches for the bed and then an additional six inches for the post behind the bed. And that's all you need. And then on those wings that stick out, just stick the planer underneath that when you're not using it. And that's all the room you, that you need. And, yep. and it'll, I, I think that'd be a, if you can swing it, that's what we recommend. Yep. Yep. Hope that so, helps. Yep. Um, I've got the next question. That you do. And this is from Jason. Is this the last question? Sure is. Okay. So this question is from Jason, and he says, hey, he asks. I do that every time. He says he asks. (laughs) Hey, guys, recently found and love the show. I'm glad you found us, Jason. I started at the beginning, and I'm fairly caught up, but forgive me if this has been discussed already. Well, I think we've discussed everything a little bit here and there. I'm planning to build my wife a very large craft desk work area. She wants it to be U-shaped so she can rotate in place and complete each operation of her projects. That's pretty ambitious. Due to the size and shape, I naturally want to assemble this in a manner that is easily that is easy to disassemble to allow for future relocation. Aside from basic but strategically located screws or bolts for assembling each section of one another, have you guys used any sort of knockdown hardware? I have used connector bolts on cheap throwaway furniture pieces before, but not on pieces that I have built. I can foresee some quality in accurately locating the various holes to be drilled when using that type of system. Any thoughts on products and or approach for such an application? P.S. I have seen a couple of neat options using the, the Domino and the Lamello biscuit joiner. I have a DeWalt biscuit joiner, but neither of the two other tools are currently at my disposal. Perhaps this is my excuse to invest in the Domino. Thanks and keep up the good work, Jason. So I took this question because I, I actually went down the road of thinking about building knockdown or what's referred to as RTA, ready to assemble furniture. And what I finally landed on was the the Lamello uh, Zeta P2. Sorry, I'm still not sure about that. (laughs) Your phone's not sure about that. Are you sure that Lamello's it? Yeah, Lamello was it. And I did a ton (laughs) of research and I actually used the Domino, not the the Domino XL, but the the smaller Domino, connectors. I actually have videos on YouTube for the Domino connectors and the Lamello Zeta uh, P2 system that are dedicated to just those connectors and tools. So if you want to check those out, please do leave a comment and subscribe. So um, (laughs) smash that like button, smash that like button. I really like the Domino connectors for what they are, it's nothing you want to give to a customer though, because they can be, I don't want to say fidgety, but I think they're, it's nothing you, like I said, you want to give a customer to or give to a customer because they're a little, 
hard to work with. Um, but Lamello is very easy. It's just boom, and you're done. It's just you stick a thing in there, and you're done. I've also used some of the uh, what, what, what what's it called? Like the bed bolts kind of thing. Um, uh, what, connector yeah. bolts. Yeah. That he, he's talking, but he's when he's saying connector bolts, that's a different animal. I'm talking about where it's a like a big round piece of steel with the hole drilled in it and it's tapped. And then you've got a big bolt that goes through it and you, you put that, it's like bed bolts or bench bolts. Um, Woodpeckers actually makes a really good jig to put those in. And I have one of those and have used it and it works really well. Um, And that's, what's that? You use it for a bed? No, I can't remember what I used it on. What did I use it on? Was that for that fold-down bed that you made? The Murphy bed? No. Oh. No. Um, Anyways, it's a a jig for bed bolts or bench bolts or whatever you want to call them. Um, And that worked really well. Uh, If you've ever done bed bolts before, it's, it's hard to get all that stuff lined up. Unless you have a good jig, and this is a good, the, the woodpeckers is a good jig. That's an alternative for you. But if you're just, but that's a little bit different animal too. So if you're connecting, you know, basically plywood boxes, which is what this is going to be—a plywood box with a with with a countertop on it, maybe. Yeah, I was trying to figure out what he, how this would be built, and what he would be using breakdown. I guess. But if I was going to make a U-shaped thing like that for my wife. It wouldn't be, it would be a U-shaped thing, but it would have hard corners on it. It wouldn't be rounded on the ends. So, you know, you've got a, a straight piece and then two wings coming off of it. I would just build it modular. Ah, gotcha. And just, I, I would just screw it together because it's just plywood boxes next to plywood boxes. It's almost like kitchen cabinets. Or yeah. Both ends. Yeah. I would just build the boxes and put them there and screw them together and you have a you can you can use a face frame or you can do it euro style whatever you want and then if you want to disconnect them it's just like when you take cabinets off your out of your kitchen they're just screwed together at yeah at the face frame i've seen them yeah so there yeah. you go this is and we say this on every question it's hard to see it's hard to comment on it on something like this without knowing jason's plans for the design but i, mm-hmm. I agree with guy if it's you know, you got the, the left and the right, which would be, you know, the straight parts. And then you got the, the end cap that'll make, that'll make it look like a U. Yeah. Just, uh, screw them together, you know, clamp the face frames together or whatever, however you're going to build it and do that and screw them together. I agree. I, I would, you know, it's hard to say without seeing more of what Jason is trying to design that maybe he's trying to design something a little more elegant than what we're describing. It's hard to say. Yeah, I mean, if you want to do something other than screws, you could use bolts and uh, T-nuts. Yeah. And that would be a little bit nicer. But, you know, and Sean's right without knowing exactly what your thoughts are. Now, if this was going to be solid wood and you don't want to, and you don't want to screw it together, uh, the Lamello system is really the way to go. Um, yeah. I, I, can't, I, I can't say enough good things about it. Now, you can take i don't know if you can do it in the dewalt or not yeah you can lamello makes that connector in a different style and i forget what they call it but it doesn't slide in like a little groove like the zeta p2 does but it, it fits in an eight millimeter slot and you nail it in place and it creates you can use the same connector and what you'd have to do with the dewalt is you'd have to make one cut, lower the blade, and make another cut to get or, an eight millimeter because it's originally that those biscuits are four millimeters. Or just buy a Lamello. Yeah, they're expensive. They're about two grand, Woo. but they're nice. They're awesome. Lower that blade. <laughs> <laughs> lower that blade. There, that that Lamello Zeta P two. I am so glad I got that. Um, I use it all the time. We we got. I've convinced them to buy one at work. And uh, we actually built a conference table that was like, I want to say it was 30 feet long 
and 15 feet wide. Dang. All in sections. That's huge. Yeah, it was all in sections. And it's all joined together with the Lamello Climax things. So I wonder if maybe that's what Jason's trying to describe is connecting the two, you know, the Could the, be. the pieces together like that in a U shape. Could be. Could be. Yeah. It, so yeah. I was impressed with the Lamello that you built that uh, TV stand on. The media the media center. Or media center. Yeah. <laughs> the media center. <laughs> the TV stand. That's what I call a TV stand. Yeah. It, well, the yeah, the media center. I was impressed with that system of how you put that together. It was awesome. Yeah, it's still it's in my living room or my family room, and it looks wonderful. It hasn't, you know, changed at apart. all. And I know I could take that thing apart and put it back together, and it would be just as solid as it is now. So pretty cool. Very cool. All right. Well, I, I hope that helps, Jason. If you have any further questions on it, just call Sean. I'll give you the phone number <laughs> at the end of the show. So I think that's going to do it for the show. And um, we're, we're, we're going to talk about what's going on in our shops. What do you got going on in your shop, Sean? Anything? Yeah, a little bit. I am. I keep saying this, but I am, I am so picky when it comes to designing now I am picky when it comes to designing stuff for my house because I, when I first started woodworking, I really didn't pay that close attention to the design. I was just so into building stuff that I was just build stuff. And now that I look mm -hmm. at it, I'm like, man, that's ugly. And you only have so much room in your house before you got to start giving furniture away. So I'm still designing the in the nightstands from from uh, from my house. Um, I've got some some ideas. I'm just drawing it in SketchUp. But while I'm doing that, I'm working on a knife box for my nephew. Um, almost done with that. I'm, I'm putting some a knife box. Yeah. He's a uh, knife collector. Well, he's, he's 10 years old. His neighbor uh, built or made handmade him his very first whittling knife. Oh, so cool. My sister said, can you build him a box for it? So obviously I'm building him a box and uh, I'm almost done with it. I'm going to flock it. I cut a pocket out with a CNC around the shape You're of the do knife. What with it? Don't swear flock it. Oh, <laughs> but I'm going to make a little video on that. It's not, it's another box video, but it's not as elaborate as my last box video, mm -hmm. but you know, it's, it, it means, means more to me than the last box video by far. So I'm finishing that up and uh, going to give it back to him. Um, probably in the next few days, I got to flock cool. the pocket that I cut out on the CNC for the, for the knife and then put some hinges and a, uh, a latch on it and it'll be done. The, the walnut, or the, the walnut, the knife handles made out of walnut. So I made the box out of walnut to match. So oh, that, that's cool. That's what I'm finishing up getting ready for this ice storm I'm about to roll through. So I probably won't be able to yeah. shop for the next couple days, but that's what I got going on. What about you guy? Yeah. In my home shop, I've got a couple I've, I've, I'm, I've been doing working on a honeydew list. So there you go. Uh, yeah, it's a lot of fun. So I've been doing a little bit of this and that. I've, I've made a couple picture frames lately. Um, that's about it in the shop. And at work, we uh, actually moved my area. We had about, I think about 3,000 square feet, maybe 4,000 square feet. We're up to over that now. I don't even know. We got like an extra eight feet. Um, but we moved from one end of the shop to the other. And we're still organizing all that. So... Yeah, it looked efficient. I saw all that tabletop space you have. Yeah, yeah. We they they closed our school down uh, that we had in the building because of COVID. We can't. We've we've tried to get outreach into the neighborhoods and stuff, and it's just there's nothing working. So we bagged it for now. And those were all workbenches that were in the classroom. So we went with the modular design, and we're putting stuff. And now we've made it all. We made it all the same height. So if we don't like this here, we can move it here, kind of thing. Yeah, uh, we've got a big open space. That slider takes up so much room. It's just, uh, it's like a quarter of the shop almost uh, of my area. So um, we've been working on that. We've got a couple projects going on in the shop, um, but that's about it. So I think cool. that's going to do it for this show. And we would like to thank everyone who left us a five-star review on iTunes. It really does help us in the search rankings. And, of course, 
we always re- appreciate the support and feedback. So get on iTunes, give us some be feedback, and tell everybody how much you love to hear Sean and Hui and complain that you can complain about me, but say nice things about Sean and Hui. Please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. And if you have woodworking questions you would like answered, you can send them through the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at woodshoplife. And uh, yeah, we live by the questions, guys and gals. So if you have questions, please send them to us. We don't read every question, but we really try to. Um, and I, I, I would like to add something to that. Yeah. We have so many different places that we have to gather questions from. So please make them either the website or the main Instagram account. Uh, we've had some questions slip through on on our website's comment section, on all these different places. Please just stick to our website's contact page or DM us at Woodshop Life because we do not want to miss your questions. Yeah. I'm of the, I'm of the opinion that Whatever's easiest for you guys to send us questions to it. But only on those two sources. Because <laughs> they will get missed. Yeah. All right. All right. Um, Unless Guy wants to collect them. Sure. Why not? So, Sean, where can people find you if they want to find you on social media? At Simple Cove and uh, my website, simplecove.com forward slash Sean if you want to see my specific uh, projects. Oh, cool. Um, you just do a search on any of the the platforms for Guy's Woodshop, and I'm Guy's Woodshop at everything. So um, I think that's it. Yep. We're going to sign off now. All right. Goodbye. Bye. We'll see you later. See you.